Okay, let's roll, okay? Let's pray. Father, I ask you again tonight that you would open our eyes so that we might have understanding of your scripture. You promised us, Lord, that if we would seek, we'd find. If we'd knock, the door would be open. If we'd ask, you'd give. Tonight we receive in advance that which you offer us, the knowledge of your word, not to know about you, but to know you, the one true God. I pray the power of Jesus' name upon the reading of his word tonight. And amen. We closed last week with Paul telling them that it was good that he didn't visit them in person because he had stored up a severe rebuke. When I read that, I thought of my dad in the front seat of the car saying, don't make me stop his car. Don't make me stop the car. Don't make me stop the car and come back there. So last week when we finished chapter 1, Paul, that was his last statement. It was good for you that I didn't come in person because I had a severe rebuke stored up for you. Now, with that context, we start chapter 2. Here we go. So I decided that I would bring that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. For if I cause you grief, who will make you glad? Certainly not someone I have grieved. That is why I wrote to you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. I wrote that letter in great anguish, with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much I love, how much love I have for you. Just the other day, I had a meeting with somebody in crisis. And I, I'm going to tell you, a crisis of crisis. And um, they knew the crisis. I knew the crisis. They walked into my office, and the first thing I said, First thing I said, I thought to set the stage, is I'm, I'm going to tell you up front, I love you enough to tell you the truth, and you're not going to want to hear it. But I love you enough. Right now, I'm going to tell you, before you come in here and sit down, I'll be the one guy who will love you enough to tell you the truth. Sometimes the truth is a painful experience. Sometimes there's something inside of us that resists the very thing we need the most. Truth. This scene is personal for me as a minister. And I know a lot of other ministers would say the same thing. It is sometimes difficult to rebuke. Now, I have met people that I think they think it's fun. And you have too. I'm not one of those. I have known people that it seems like they really have a good time rebuking others. It's not, it's not easy. I can see the temptation of being a prosperity preacher. Don't think I can't see it. It'd be a whole lot easier. It'd take a whole lot less work, and there'd be a whole lot less opposition to be a prosperity preacher. Just tell people what they want to hear, tickle their ears, tell them funny stories, be, be laughable, be humorous, get, use a lot of illustrations, let people go out with this. Didn't that feel good? Huh? Didn't that feel good? 
The husband looks over at his wife and says, don't you feel better? Yeah. What are you talking about? I don't know. I just feel better. You know, it's easy. Who wants to rebuke and cause grief? Who wants to call out someone? Who wants to stand on something that you know in advance is not going to be popular? So, being as I've said that, let me just say this, because this is real. It's, it's real. Probably going to bullseye some people in the room today. The church is taking a very strict position on marriage. Now, not about the same-sex marriage. You, you all know about that thing. But on the issue of marriage, somebody comes to me and they're living together and want to get married. Somebody's got to move out. i got a lot of people already mad at me. I don't care. It is so easy to go along. And it's so easy. I mean, we have situations, people come in the office, and they, they're all excited, want to get married, and we tell them the church's position. It's written down. We make it very clear, black and white. You want, you want to prepare for your wedding? You want to get married in the church? You want to get married as a believer in Christ? Here's what we've got to do. You're living together? Okay, let's deal with that. One of, which one of you is moving out? You think that's easy? You know what would be easy? Just grin. Just don't bring it up. Just don't talk about it. Let's just go along so we can get along. All right? world's full of churches that will go along and get along. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth, and this is his second letter because the first letter dealt with sexual sin inside the church. You're going to be surprised how he deals with it. The modern church is surprised how he deals with it. Paul's conclusion we're going to find out tonight is truth is the only way to find true joy. You might make somebody feel better, but are, are you doing them any good to make them feel better in a lie? Are you helping things any? Is that the church? Let's just all get together and make each other feel good, but we're all living a lie. If truth causes grief, here comes the dilemma. If truth causes grief, then that grieving will give birth to joy when Jesus Christ is revealed. But I want joy now, preacher. I don't want to wait for Jesus to get joy. Truth is Jesus. Jesus is truth. You can't separate the two, hoping someday in the future they'll rejoin and hug you. They're the same. Remember last week's topic? Grace and peace. It comes from being made right with God through the forgiveness of our sins, right? It comes grace and peace. Who doesn't want grace and peace? But it comes from God through the forgiveness of our sins. We we receive the grace which He offers to forgive us. And we receive the peace with God because He has forgiven us. I'm not at war with Him anymore. I'm not fighting Him anymore. Paul then references the sin that he called out in the first letter to the church of Corinth. We're, we're reading 2 Corinthians. We're reading the second letter to a church. Well, he's already brought up the first letter, right? Are you catching it? He's already bringing up the controversy of the first letter and how he struggled to write the letter. 
Because he didn't want to go rebuke somebody. He doesn't want to be that guy who stands there and tells them what they don't want to hear. But he's called by God. He's got to. He's called of God. Paul then references the sin that is called out in the first letter of the church. And I'll just tell you, it's sexual sin. One thing consistent throughout time. Sexual sins in the church. Verse 5. I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. This is a reference to the first letter, 1 Corinthians. Most of you opposed him. Opposed who? The guy causing all the trouble because of sexual sin written about in the first letter to Corinth. And that was punishment enough. Let's read it one more time. I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble in the church hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him. And that was punishment enough. So what was the sin inside the church that Paul is referring to in his second letter? What is the sin that caused so much trouble? What was it that most of the people in the church opposed? What was it? Well, this will be meaningless tonight unless you understand that. You won't get the second letter if you don't understand the first letter. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here we go. Here's what it is. Here's what he's talking about. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Everybody with me? There's a man in a sexual relation with his stepmother. Paul says even the pagans aren't doing it. And it's happening in the church. Now here, before I read it, how's the church dealing with it? Are they going to go along and get along? How are they going to deal with it? Look at it. You think this doesn't have application today? Really? Where have you been living? Does this matter? Let's keep going. So you're proud of yourselves? Paul's writing the church. There's sexual sin. Obvious, open, sexual sin. You're proud of yourselves? Wonder why he says that. Do you think that they believed that the way to deal with that was to be accepting? To be tolerant? To be gracious? No, church wouldn't think that was how you deal with sexual sin. No, 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 church wouldn't do that, would it? Well, well let's, let's be tolerant, let's be accepting, let's be gracious. You're proud of yourselves? But you should be mourning in sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. Well, that's not very tolerant. That's not very accepting. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in spirit, and as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man. I thought you weren't supposed to do that. I thought you weren't supposed to do that. Paul, see, See how judgmental he is? In the name of the Lord Jesus, he has passed judgment. You must call a meeting of the church. Here's Paul's instruction. You, let me ask you before I read it. Do you think Paul has apostolic authority? This man who met Jesus and went to the third heaven and was called, appointed by Jesus to be the, the ambassador to the Gentiles of planet Earth. Do you think he's got any authority? 
Do you think he speaks for Jesus? Or is he speaking on his own? He's a wild man. Which one? In the name of the Lord Jesus. He says, I've already judged the man. You must call a meeting of the church and I'll present with you. And I, and I will be present with you in spirit. So will the power of the Lord Jesus. And then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. <laughs> you think the church has changed a lot? Throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. Why? Why? Because we're mean, self-righteous people in here, right? That's why? No. So that his sinful nature will be destroyed. And he himself will be saved on the day of the Lord. The Lord returns. Paul told them to throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. Why? Why? If you don't get it, you're going to miss everything tonight. Why? Why would Paul, and why is he bringing it up in the second letter? My goodness, you're going to deal with that again? Why? Why throw him out? What, what good is throwing him out? Can't we just ignore it? Can't we just pretend like everything's okay? Can't we just go along and get along? Was this to save him or send him to hell? Can we just make it that simple? Was this, was this taking this guy by the back of his collar and whooping him out the door, was it to save his soul or send him to hell? Now some people are going to say, I don't even care. It's not nice. Do you love a person enough to tell them the truth? Do you love a person enough to tell them the truth? Paul is not kicking this guy out the door to send him to hell. Paul's sending him outside the door so that what? He will see the depravity of his own sin and find the opportunity to repent, turn to Christ and be restored and save his soul. Can you handle the truth? Many in the modern church can't handle it. I wonder what would happen if this was happening today. We'd be on CNN, I'd guarantee you that. We'd have news coverage. Now look at Paul's second letter about this event. Verse 7. Now, however, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Been a lot of time passed between those two letters. Obviously, Paul knows something's happened since they kicked this dude out. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. Grace and peace through the forgiveness of sins. That's Paul's prayer for the church. If you were here last week, you heard it's clear. It wasn't just Paul, it's Peter, it's, it's all of them. Their prayer for the church is what? Grace and peace. How do you get grace and how do you get peace? Walking away from God or walking toward God? Turning your back on God or facing God? Which one gives it? Which one? You got to face him. Paul has expelled this man from the church so that he will see the depravity of his sin and turn around and face God. Or we can just pretend like it's not real, it's not relevant. Let's just go along to get along and let this man die lost in his sin. And let's let him take others with him because then it becomes like a little bit of yeast that leavens the whole batch. And then nobody knows the truth anymore. And everybody's lost. Well, that'd be nicer. You know what? It would be nicer today. 
What are you going to do about that day when we stand in front of him? What are we going to do about that day? Is this the truth? Are we reading the truth? Now, I must assume that they did throw this man out, and I also assume that there was genuine repentance in Paul's request to now forgive him, to now bring him back, to now restore him to the body. By the way, I believe all along that was Paul's goal, to remove him so that he can be restored. Not to remove him so that he could be lost, but to remove him so we can save him. Now it's time to forgive. Now here comes the heavy thing for the church. Listen carefully. Now comes the time to forgive and to comfort. This indeed is the message of Christ. Grace and peace. What does that mean? If there is genuine repentance, and, and by the way, I can't always tell when it's genuine. You can fake me out, probably. But if I perceive there is genuine repentance and you perceive there is genuine repentance, you've got one answer and only one answer. You must receive and restore. You hear me, church? Uh, there's a whole lot of people that like the idea of booting somebody out, but they don't like the idea of opening the door and bringing them back in. Now, what is the difference between the two points? There must be genuine repentance. Now, I'm going to get into in a few minutes what that means. In fact, I'm, I'm convinced a whole lot of people in the church aren't sure. They don't really know what genuine repentance is. It is spelled out. It is spelled out, by the way, also in 2 Corinthians. What's it look like? Now it's time to forgive. Now it's time to comfort. Verse 9. I wrote to you, as I did, to test you to see if you would fully comply with my instructions. What, what do you think he's... Did you kick him out? Did you remove him from the church? I wrote to you as I did to see if you would fully comply with my instructions. Did you remove this guy from the church? When you forgave, excuse me, when you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive, whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. So that Satan will not outsmart us. For we are all familiar with his evil schemes. Forgiveness. We all want it, but we struggle sometimes to get it. I'm going to say it one more time very clearly. If there is repentance, there must be forgiveness. I don't care what they did. I don't care who they did it to. I don't care when they did it and what were circumstances. Let me tell you what. You got to forgive them. With the measure that you do will be the measure that you receive. So I'm going to do it with a scoop shovel. Okay? I'm going to get one of those big barn shovels. Big wide barn shovels. But what is, what, what is it that brings the turn? Because we've just talked about, we threw this guy out, and now what are we doing? We're bringing this guy back. What happened? Repentance. When can I bring him back? Repentance. When can he come back? Repentance. What if he doesn't repent? Come on, come on. What's the real world? What if he doesn't?
Do you love somebody enough to tell them the truth? Are we doing anybody any good? Are we doing anybody any good to let's just pretend like it doesn't matter or it didn't happen? Do you love somebody enough to tell them the truth? Maybe Paul's a hater. I had somebody tell me that one time. He's a hater. Okay. You say so. How could Satan outsmart us? Did you notice that Paul says we need to forgive so that Satan doesn't outsmart us because he knows that he's clever. He can figure out how to do that. But we know his scheme. So I'm going to ask Jesus, how could Satan outsmart us in this category? How could he do it? Okay. Luke 6, 37. Do not judge others. These are the words of Christ. Do not judge others. I thought Paul just said a moment ago that he judged this man, opened the door and let him go. Jesus says, do not judge others or you will, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others or it, will be, or it will all come back against you. Forgive others and you'll be forgiven. Give. Give what? In this context, give what? In this context, give what? Grace, mercy, forgiveness. Give it and you'll receive it. Your gift will return to you in full. Press down, shaking together, make room for more, running over, pour it into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. If you give grace, you'll get grace. How many of y'all want grace and peace? Then you've got to give grace and peace. But that brings up the question. What is it that moves me from the door open, you need to leave now, to the grace and peace? What is it? It's a word nobody wants to talk about. Nobody wants to talk about it. Because you know what? If you talk about it, they're going to be offended. If you talk about it, they're going to feel like you're against them. And if you talk about it, it seems so unloving and so unkind and so intolerant. Why do you want to bring up repentance? I'm going to tell you, if you've been here very long, you've heard me say, I'm convinced repentance is the most beautiful word in the Bible. You know why? Repentance restores the broken relationship with God. God didn't have to give us that. That's part of the grace. He gave us the ability to repent, the ability to turn around. He didn't have to. He could have said, one time you're out. Well, we'd all be out, right? So does that mean the church and Paul were wrong to kick this guy out of church in the first place? Now I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to answer that question. Was Paul wrong to kick this guy out of church in the first place? Because Jesus says, do not judge others, you'll be judged. Well, let's let the Bible answer the Bible. Paul says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. Well, let's get something really clear tonight. It is not my jo job, it is not your job as a believer to judge unbelievers. Somebody say hallelujah. You'd have to quit your full-time job to take this one on. Huh? Let it go. It is, Paul says it's not my, my job to judge outsiders. But it certainly is your responsibility, church, to judge those inside the church who are sinning. So if one of you comes to me and you don't like how something's being handled, and you say to me, you know what, I don't know what makes you think you have the authority or the responsibility to judge this. I'm just going to point to this verse and say, you read it. You read it. Because one of these days, I'm going to stand in front of God. 
And God put me in this position. He's put others in these positions. And he didn't put us here to look pretty and get along. He put us here because of this thing called truth. And we have to stand on this thing called truth. If you remove truth, there's nothing left. He says this, it is certainly your job, your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are what? Who are sinning. Now what if you don't know? If you don't know, you don't know. This came up recently. Somebody was fussing, well, you didn't apply it the same way. You, you treated this one differently than that one. Well, what is that one? When they told me, so, I didn't know. But what you do know, you're going to deal with. God will judge those on the outside. But the scriptures say you must remove the evil person from among you. What are you going to do? Anybody got a big eraser? Huh? Anybody got a big eraser? Been the big white out things, those white ones? Let's just take that one out. There's two verses. What? 12, 13. Let's get rid of that. I like the grace and peace part. Let's leave that in, but let's take out 12 and 13. There is no forgiveness without repentance. Church, if you don't hear anything I say tonight, understand this. There is no forgiveness of sin without repentance. And if you discount what I just said, you come to me with the Bible, not your opinion. You come to me with the Bible and tell me I'm wrong. There is no forgiveness without repentance. And repentance must be genuine. It's not sorry you got caught. Let me tell you what repentance is not. Repentance is not you're sorry you got caught. Let me tell you what that repentance is. It's the kid that's in the kitchen in the cookie jar and you slipped in and found him with his hand down in there. He is not repentant. He is going to hit that cookie jar again soon. <laughs> Let me tell you. And he can look at you and say, I'm sorry. You are not. As soon as you're out of there, he's, he's smelling cookies. You know what? We got a whole, we got a mentality that church age repentance is, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry this is not working out well. I'm sorry this has created such a weird environment for my family and for the church. That's not repentance. It's not repentance. Repentance is turning around. It's a change of your direction. It's to understand you have grieved God. You turn your back on the one who's put air in your lungs. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. But you continue to walk away from God. I'm so no, you're not sorry. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're deceived. There's a difference between being sorry and deceived. And you know what's really sad? Is when people in the church say, Oh, it's okay you become part of the problem you're not part of the solution you're part of the problem you know why because you want to go along to get along it won't work so what is repentance let's go to second corinthians i told you it's in second corinthians it's in chapter seven this is not my opinion this is the word of god and I'm going to say it again. I am absolutely positively convinced that the Bible is the only physical source of absolute truth on this planet. And here's what it says. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience 
leads us away from sin. Do you understand? The kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience leads us away from sin, and it results in what? Salvation. That's sorrow that's good sorrow. There's no regret in that kind of sorrow. You're not going to one day down the road be sorry that you had that kind of sorrow. No, you're going to be happy that you had that kind of sorrow. At the moment, does it feel good? No, it feels awful. But down the road, it feels wonderful. You know what? Because down the road, you look up and you're facing God. You've not got your back toward Him. But there's another one. But worldly sorrow. This is sorry you got caught. Worldly sorrow which lacks repentance. Results in what, church? Spiritual death. And you think you're helping somebody? You think you're, you think you're a friend to somebody when you go along to get along and you pretend like it's not happening and you never bring it? You know how many people in the church have come to me and said, well, I got this situation with my family. I got this situation with a friend. I really don't know how to confront them because every time I bring it up, they get mad at me. <sighs> do we believe this? See, I do. What's your, op- what's your option? What's your option? Go along, get along. Do you love them? That person, that friend, do you love them? Do you love them enough to tell them the truth? Or maybe, maybe, can I just say this? Maybe you don't really believe this is true. I sure didn't write it. Worldly sorrow which lacks repentance results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. God, good sorrow, not bad sorrow. Such earnestness. Well, repentance does amazing things. It, it opens the power of God to be released inside your heart. He says, such, it, it produced such earnestness, such concern for, for, to, to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, such a readiness to punish wrong. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. Listen, that's godly sorrow right there. That's the definition of godly sorrow. You've done everything you can to make this right. You don't just keep doing it and act like it didn't happen. Doing wrong will never make things right. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live in it any longer? How? How? But you don't want to change. Now, very brief b- travel plans from the Apostle Paul. But, but don't read over it. Next verse, verse 12. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit being his guide. Okay? Being his guide. See if you can catch it. When I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened the door of opportunity for me. But I had no peace in my mind. I had no peace of mind. The Lord opened the door of opportunity, but Paul lacked peace. What did Paul say he wanted to give the church? Grace and peace. But now Paul doesn't have it. Why? Because my dear brother Titus hadn't yet arrived with a report from you, so I said goodbye and I went on to Macedonia to find him. The Holy Spirit has made us His captives, and now He leads us to victory in Christ. Let me tell you what this, where I'm going with this. 
See, I'm convinced that Paul, once he received the Holy Spirit, was guided by the Holy Spirit day by day by day by day by day. I think Paul didn't have to come up with a plan to be the Gentile, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. I think God had the plan for Paul to be the apostle to the Gentile, and he had to allow the Holy Spirit to take him to the right place at the right time to do the right thing. That same Holy Spirit's yours. You got the same one. Will you walk? Will I walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? Will I be sensitive to His directions? So many times there's so many distractions, there's so much noise in our lives that we can't hear Him telling us what to do. Paul's changing his plans. He's allowing the Holy Spirit to guide him. Now, I've always considered this next section to be incredible in its description of the church. And why? Most people would not describe the church as a smell as an aroma as a fragrance paul does look listen to it verse 14 but thank god he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in christ's triumphant procession now he uses us Christians to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Like a, the knowledge. He uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Now push pause for a moment. I, I, some of y'all know John Lee. Um, John Lee is in Puerto Rico or somewhere in the Caribbean. I guess he's still in Puerto Rico. And he sent me a text message yesterday morning. And uh, Scott had already given me a heads up. Scott, um, uh, John Lee had to go back. He's an air traffic controller. He flew into the eye of the storm because that's his job and he's going to have to be down there. So what's he going to do? Do you believe the Holy Spirit leads us in triumphant procession? Leads us in triumphant procession. John Lee sent me a text yesterday morning and it was a picture. He, he had called in a guy that he works with into his hotel room, and they're watching, I suppose, on his laptop, last Sunday sermon. And he sent me several comments on that, several things that I'll keep personal. But why? See, I think he's exactly where he's supposed to be at exactly the right time and the right place. But somebody would say, but there's a hurricane coming. Yeah. There he is. And when do you think you would need hope in Christ? When do you think you would need it? See, I'm convinced, that, and that's just a, an illustration. I think that God leads us all by the Holy Spirit in triumphant procession. And he, he, there's an aroma. And it's not just that we smell funny. It's, it's that he's producing something in us and through us and around us. He's got a work he's doing. Now, back to this, verse, verse uh, 15. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? 
The church led by the Holy Spirit is like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Jesus-like fragrance rising up to God the Father. I want you to don't miss this. We're a sweet smell to Him. But on this world, the smell of the church can go, go two different directions. We can smell good or we can smell bad. Depending upon the person that's sniffing us. The church smells like death to the perishing. Do you know that? Why, 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 would, why does anybody fear the church? Let me give you an example. I heard this years ago, just an illustration. Let's just say you go into one of the most dangerous cities in America, Chicago. It's safer to go to Puerto Rico in a hurricane than to go to Chicago on a Saturday night. So you go to Chicago on a Saturday night and your car breaks down downtown going across the interstate. Your car's quit. Let's go option A. Option A, there's a bar over there and there's 14 motorcycles in front of it. And that's one way out. Option B, there's a church front, storefront, not a very nice neighborhood, but out of that church walks 14 guys carrying a Bible. Which one are you most afraid of? You see, logically, anybody would say, I'm going to go toward those 14 guys packing the Bible. But in reality, you know what the world fears the most? Those 14 guys packing the Bible. They have not outlawed motorcycles. But you can't take a Bible to school. You see, to some people, it is the smell of death. It doesn't make any sense to me. Because to me, it's the smell of life. To me, I look at those guys packing the Bible, and that's safe. That's security. That's my deliverance from this Chicago street. But to the world, uh, 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 oh, that's, that's the thing we've got to get out of here. Because that thing's limiting our, our freedoms. That thing is restricting my pleasures. That, that, those things, that, you know, that, that's, that's cramping my style. Which one do we smell like? The church smells like sweet perfume to those who are being saved. So let's connect this smell to the Old Testament sacrifices. Now here's where it gets interesting. If the New Testament church is an aroma to God, a pleasant aroma to God, we're a terrible aroma to the lost we're a sweet aroma to the saved where does this aroma stuff find its origin let's go back before excuse me after the flood noah comes off the boat what's he do genesis 8 noah built an altar to the lord and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose <clears throat> and the lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, night, day and night. It's what, that's, that's an aroma after the flood. But let's, let's fast forward. They're coming out of Egypt now. 
400 years of Egyptian bondage. Moses is the deliverer. He brings them out. He's about to establish, because God told him to, the Aaronic priesthood, the high priest, okay? How will he establish the high priest of Aaron? Exodus 20, 29, excuse me. <clears throat> Next, Aaron and his sons must lay their hands on the head of one of the rams. Then slaughter the ram and splatter its blood against all sides of the altar. Cut the ram into pieces and wash off the internal organs and the legs. Set them alongside the head and the other pieces of the body. Then burn the entire animal on the altar. This is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a special gift presented to the Lord. Now, please don't miss what I'm reading here. If you focus on the aroma and miss the application, the flood, God says, I will never again destroy the earth. There's an aroma. God was pleased. I will never again destroy the earth with water. I will never again eradicate all mankind in this way. And then, how is he going to not? Then he establishes a priesthood. One to stand between man and God. And then he makes a promise. In the book of Ezekiel, he announces when Jesus comes, there will be a smell. Not the smell of Jesus. Let me read it. I will accept you, Israel, in the future. Not yet. It's coming in the future. I will accept you as a fragrant offering when I bring you out of the nations, from the nations, and I gather you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will show myself holy among you in the sight of the nations. God has announced that there, right now Israel doesn't smell very good, but they will. They will become a fragrant offering when Jesus comes. God has a sense of smell. And we are created in the image and the likeness of God. So we too have a sense of smell. Now, now with that background, in that context, maybe we can better understand why Paul wrote Romans chapter 12. Because here's what he told us to do in the church age. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to do what? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. What would that smell like? What would be the aroma of that to God? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve God's, what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know what the problem with a living sacrifice is? <laughs> See, he says, what? Don't present yourself as a dead sacrifice. That's what all the sacrifices have been in the past. You had to kill them and put them up on the altar. He says, no, no, no. I want you to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You, but there's a problem with living sacrifices when you put them up on the altar. They crawl off the altar. They don't want to stay on the altar. So I don't know how many years it's been now, but I begin every day of my life with this prayer. Therefore, in view of your mercy, I offer my body as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable. This is my act of worship. I don't want to be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but I long to be transformed by the renewing of my mind so that I today might know your good, perfect, pleasing will. Every morning I get back up on the altar. I don't trust me off the altar. Do you know the smell of life? Do you know the smell of death? Let me repeat verse 16. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? There is no neutral. One is life and the other is death. There are only two spirits. The prophet Simeon announced it to Mary and Joseph when Jesus was eight days old. What? There's only two smells to God. There's only two smells to the world. There's the saved, there's the lost. There's a perfume and then it's dreaded odor. Jesus is eight days old and Mary and Joseph take him to the temple to do the Jewish purification. Here's what happened. Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and he praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother. Now, eight days old, and this prophet man of God, that God said, you will not die until you see him. This prophet looks at Mary and says these words. This child is destined to cause many in Israel to what? Go to heaven? That is not what he said, is it? He is destined to cause many in Israel to fall. But he will be the joy of many others. He has been sent as a sign from God. But many will oppose him. Do you doubt that? The smell of life and the smell of death. And who is adequate for such a task? Only those who are led by the Spirit. Verse 17. And we'll, we'll, we'll uh, finish tonight. Paul says, you see, we are not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the Word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. You know, I'm going to tell you, there's, there's a whole lot of moments in which I feel the pressure to back off of an issue. And then there's always this thing that comes into my mind that I'm going to stand in front of God. And I'm going to give an account. Love equals truth. 
if you imagine love without truth, you are deceived. There's no such thing. It's a lie. Love equals truth. And here's the question. I believe tonight the truth has been laid out in a way everybody in this room can understand. What will you do with it? What do you need to do with it? First, you need to receive it yourself, and then you need to share it. I'm telling you the truth. Church, I'm telling you your assignment from God, my assignment from God. I have to receive the truth. The love of God is the truth of God, and then I must share it. I must share the truth. To share the truth is to share the love. I cannot share the love without sharing the truth. They are together. I love how the Christian Standard Bible translates that last verse. For we do not market the word of God for profit like so many. I'm going to tell you, the Bible and these words are not for sale. They are not up for negotiation. They are absolute truth. Years ago, while we were in Dale, I think I've shared this before, I was at a retreat and while we were in Dale, a man I greatly respect, he said these words, and it just pierced my heart. He said, may I always preach as a dying man to dying men. And I say tonight, may I always preach as a dying man to dying men. May I acknowledge that I'm dying. I am mortal flesh. You are dying. You are mortal flesh. And you and I are going to stand in front of God. And we're going to give an account for truth. And the words of God are truth. Now with all of that said, I passed out this for a specific reason. I have had a whole lot of questions based on last uh, two weeks ago when I preached that sermon where I said this. When Moses was on the mountain of God, God gave Moses seven Jewish feasts. You know what that word really translates? Appointed times, appointed days. They held a feast, but they didn't get to choose the days. God chose the days. He told Moses about the days. He told Moses that every year, as long as there's earth, the Jewish people are to continue these seven appointed days. Go look it up. Jesus is the fulfillment of all seven. Do you think Moses knew that? He didn't know that. Did the people know that in the Old Testament? They didn't know that. But here comes Jesus, generations later, and he is the fulfillment. How do you make this up? He is the fulfillment of every one of those Jewish feasts. Now, I told you two weeks ago that four of the seven feasts happened in the springtime. The three of them happened in the fall. Four of them have already been fulfilled by Christ. This sheet is a very good visual to tell you which four. Passover. Jesus died on the Passover, fulfilling the first Jewish feast. By the way, 
the Jewish feasts every year have to happen on a certain day. They operate on a lunar calendar. It is a pre-appointed, pre-selected dates. Okay? Nobody sets those dates. God sets those dates. So Jesus died. He was crucified on Passover. The next feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The next feast is the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. Now, somebody might say after three of them, wow, that was lucky, wasn't it? Number four, the Feast of the Harvest or Pentecost. Fifty days after the resurrection, something happened. Jesus came back to the earth in the form of the Holy Spirit in power. He descended into Jerusalem. So, it's easy to see, it's easy to say. By the way, all of these are not somebody's opinion. Read the Bible. They all clearly happened on these feast days. So four of the seven feasts that God gave Moses on the mountain have all been fulfilled by Jesus on the day that was appointed in advance hundreds of years. Moses be 1,500 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. There's two feasts left. Excuse me, three feasts left. The Feast of Trumpets. Notice there's a question mark. Notice there's a question mark. Gathering of the church. Will the Feast of Trumpets be the gathering of the church? Will the Feast of Trumpets be the rapture of the church? If you, even if you said yes, you wouldn't know which year. You wouldn't know which year. But I can tell you this, the Feast of the Trumpets is tomorrow. It is September 21st. In Israel, when the sun sets on September 20th, the Feast of Trumpets will begin. What's that do to you? Gives me goosebumps. There is another feast that follows. So I'm going to ask you. I'm not predicting that Jesus is going to, the rapture is going to happen tomorrow on the Feast of Trumpets. But I'm not predicting it's not going to happen tomorrow on the Feast of Trumpets. I don't know. How would I know? Quite frankly, if it happened today, I was looking forward to that. On the day before the Feast of Trumpets. The next feast after that is the Day of Atonement. Is that the second coming of Jesus? Somebody might be confused. Is that when Jesus comes? If the Feast of Trumpets, trumpets is his call to the church to come home, is the Day of Atonement when he comes for the Jewish remnant after the tribulation? Finally, that will bring the last and final feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Will it be the inaugural of the millennial reign of Christ? The thousand years of Jesus on the earth where we will tabernacle with him. What does it mean, tabernacle? We will live with him. Tabernacle is a house, a building, where he will reign in Jerusalem on the throne of David. Four of the feast, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and harvest. 
have taken place. I'm convinced. I'm convinced we live between the spring and the fall. It's called the church age in which the harvest is being brought in. The harvest is being brought in. The harvest. We are in the time of the harvest. And in Romans 11, when the full number of Gentiles has come in, harvest ends for the church. And then he turns what? To Israel. And he opens their eyes to see. The Feast of Trumpets is tomorrow. The Day of Atonement is September the 30th. The Feast of Tabernacles is October the 5th. Maranatha, Hosanna, Hallelujah, Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for grace and peace. Thank you for forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. Thank you for repentance. For we have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. But you gave us this way. Grace made a way for us to turn around and face you. To turn from our sins so we don't have to die in our sin. Thank you for godly sorrow that leads to repentance and produces salvation. You didn't have to give that to us, but you did. It's called grace and peace. Father, I pray, fill your church with the light of your Holy Spirit. Fill your church with truth, and may it not be for sale so we can go along and get along. Make your bride ready for the coming. Put oil in our lamps and light in our lives, I pray. May we be found faithful and ready on that last day, whenever that last day comes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all.